children can be dismissed. The images you just saw were images, of course, our, our town of Fairfield, a, a city that um, we believe Jesus loves and that Jesus is in the process of bringing his light to. And, um, and if it happens to be that you live in Vacaville or, or Sassoon or Napa, then you can kind of think of your city when, when we're talking about this. But um, we have been praying, and, and you heard over the last couple of weeks, uh, ways in which we believe God is going to continue to reach our city that he loves um, through his people. Um, one of those ways is, is through um, serving our community, and, and many of you have been doing that for years um, through great ministries like Alpha and through the Leaven and through Mission Solano and, and um, uh, just all kinds of different ways. Um, some of you I heard were at, the, at, the, at the, the race that was on Saturday, and a lot of people from Parkway showed up, which is awesome, just God's people getting involved in the community, which is, which is great, and that's, of course, uh, what we want to continue to do for the purpose of, of gaining a hearing so that we can actually speak forth uh, the gospel of Jesus. And another way um, that we shared with you, too, is just praying for our neighbors, and that's uh, my brother uh, Justin up here. Um, is just going to share with you something that's happening today, and um, for those of you who feel called to, uh, to join him in this, um, in this kind of insertion into our community. So, Justin, tell us what's happening. Yeah, so today at, uh, from 3 to 5, we're going to be over at the apartments just back here, and it's just been something we've been doing, um, you know, like I told you guys, over the last, you know, few months in the summer. And it's just been, I couldn't help to think about it when we were singing that song, just beautiful things. It's truly what's been happening, um, is we've just been finding these people that are in these communities, and the Lord is just working um, in their lives, and and just some really good things happening. And for some reason, he chooses to use um, us, and and it's just an awesome thing. And so I know it's difficult to, you know, go home, and you guys will eat lunch and be home for a little while and get the football games on and then come back at 3 o'clock. But I would just challenge you guys, if the Lord's calling you to do that, um, just to answer that call, because um, the last thing that the devil has is just the fear that he can put in you guys uh, to stop doing that. Um, and like Dan said, there's multiple other things going on that you can get involved in, but that's just kind of one area that we want to open up to you is just to to get to know our neighbors and to pray for them and be involved in their lives. So if that's something that you feel is stirring to do, um, we'll be here today from 3 to 5. We're doing it on the 1st and 3rd of every month. This one has five, so we're going to do the fifth month as well. Um, but I would just challenge you guys again, don't let fear um, hold you back from doing it, whether it's this or getting involved with Mission Zolano or Alpha. Just as a church, something we want to do is just be involved in our community, um, just being active in that community for Christ. So, Thanks, Justin. So I like the way he put that, and that is that, you know, you feel led or called by the Lord. There's so many great ministries to be a part of and ways of, of serving the community, and that's just, just one of them. And, um, and if you're not called to that, that's totally fine. We don't want you to feel guilty about not showing up. And if you do happen to show up, you know, don't get frustrated because others haven't shown up. It's just part of different people called to different things, and we just want to make that opportunity available to you to simply come and pray for the people around this church as a, as a way of showing love to them. So um, that is today. And then I should also say, in, in um, keeping with that, I was asked um, last service if um, those of you who are able to give blood, this is another way that um, once a year we as a congregation are able to actually give blood, kind of like Jesus gave blood, um, for those who need it. So there are sign-ups after our church for times. I believe it's going to be October 20th. It's after second service. And it's, you know, you go sit on a bus with a bunch of other people in this church, and you give blood, and you talk, and sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's great. 
Um, but it's just a way of, of serving the community. So if you're able to give blood and you're not afraid of needles, or if you are, maybe just say, Lord, you can help me you know, do this. Jesus died for me. I can let a needle go in my vein. Um, then that's a way that you can serve. So um, that will be after service. You'll see a table there, and you can sign up. Um, in addition to, to just serving the community, um, another thing that, that we feel even more strongly about is that all of that working and serving our community has to come from one place. And that is it has to come from God's grace and his love um, being taken into the heart of his people, and it overflows outward. That is, we can talk about working and serving all we want, but if our hearts and our lives, and more importantly, our faith, is not um, rooted and grounded in this thing we call the gospel, which is the constant fountain of our strength, then all of the stuff that we do is for nothing. And, and we will lack the will, actually, to do it. Which is why the other direction we're going is just simply to recenter and renew ourselves in the Christ-centered gospel of Jesus Christ. So, um, it, with, in, and in light of that, we've been, last week was the first message in uh, the book of Galatians, kind of an overview, and, and this morning we're just going to be looking at the first uh, few verses of, of that book um, with the aim, again, of, of God's Spirit just replenishing and renewing um, His grace in our lives. Before I pray for us, our time in, in, um, in the Word, I thought it would be good for us just to take a, cu- a couple of moments in silence to just pray for Justin and those who will show up that um, God would show love to our neighbors and just um, that God would, it would make a difference. So will you take just a moment of silence and, um, and just pray for them, and then I'll pray, and then we'll open the Word together. Father, you are um, amazingly good to us, and we want to reconnect ourselves to that goodness, um, to your heart, to your heart of extravagant grace and and love that is poured out more than we'll ever know um, for our eternal well-being, not only so that we can live now in the freedom of forgiveness and and hope, but also to live in the the knowledge that this life is not the end. Lord, we pray that um, this place, um, the Parkway family, would not be a place where we go through the motions of, of empty Christianity, but where we're able to face, honestly, our own struggles, our own um, deficiencies, um, honestly, and, and also to, to hunger and thirst for the living God and to see him change us. Because as we sing, you are the subject of the verb make beautiful, and you're the only one who can. And so we ask that you, through your word and and through confession and through community and so forth, that you would just continue to do your work of of renewal and bringing life um, in this place that flourishes and just overflows into our um, streets and into those who live next door to us. And Lord, we pray for that. And only Jesus can do that by unlocking the fountains of living water and and allowing them to flow over. So um, we pray for that, and I, I pray that you would grant your spirit power to these words, um, ancient words, which through the generations have touched off um, new life 
in your, your, your people's existence, um, the book of Galatians. So will you, Lord, do only what you can do, and that is meet each person where they are and um, um, places where we have um, we've thought your gospel to be one thing and, and, and have not truly understood it to the point where it just completely renews us. I pray that you'd break down that false understanding and, and just bring renewal. So, Lord, uh, grant power in my lips and grant power on those apart, uh, on the part of those here who are hearing um, that we would hear you afresh in Christ's name. Amen. I am going to do what I did last service. Uh, you're going to have to indulge me sitting on a stool. Uh, my son and I, with a group of others, uh, climbed Half Dome yesterday, and I will humbly say that he beat me to the top. You know, a 16-year-old, but it's like 18 miles round trip, and, and my legs first service were shaking when I was standing up here, and they're still kind of shaking. Um, so I'm just going to sit, and it's really hard for me to sit and speak, so I'll probably stand up anyway at some points. Just, you know, it's hard to talk sitting down, especially with uh, what we're going to talk about today. I will say, though, that I'm just blown away by the simple gifts of the Lord. I heard this morning that the, um, someone who's been struggling with a disease has is, is, uh, heard good news that it's, um, it's being worked through in a good way and positive results. And I was standing on a mountain um, yesterday with my firstborn son, and I was just blown away by the simple gift of being able to spend time um, with an aging son who's, you know, leave the nest in, the, in a year and a half. And I'm just very grateful, grateful for simple gifts. Um, and thinking of simple gifts, how much more we should be grateful for the great gift that God has given to us. You know, I met a young man, um, it's probably a decade ago now, um, who told me about something that, that um, hindered his, his, his Christian growth. And, and, and that is that he shared with me um, something that his father told him uh, earlier in life, I think junior, junior, senior high years, in which his father said to this man I was talking to, he said, um, you're, a, you're, a, you're a lazy slob, is what he said. The father said this to the son. Years later, when I was talking to this, this young man, he, he told me, he says, you know, I've had the hardest time getting past those words. You know, those words from his father were like a defining moment for him, that he saw himself as, as a lazy slob. And he went on to say, you know, I did so many things in high school to try and overcome that and overturn that so that I could feel like my father loved me for me. Um, and and he, he went out for athletics, and he did decent athletics. And, and yet, he shared with me years after the experience that that defining moment was so hard to shake, and he tried and tried and tried to try and overcome that defining moment where he was told he was a lazy slob and, and saw himself as a lazy slob, and, and, and yet he couldn't, in what he was doing, gain his, his father's, um, what we call now, a, approval or, or full and complete acceptance. And that, was, that left him in a, in a very defeating place. Um, and I, I know that young man, he's now in his 30s, and I don't believe he's ever shook that defining moment, you know? And um, I don't know what, what was in the father's heart that said, you know, you're a lazy slob to his teenage son. Uh, it might have been that he was just exasperated. He was, you know, he was frustrated because his son lacked um, uh, energy. He was maybe, in fact, lazy. Or maybe the father thought, this is a way of motivating my son. You know, by saying this negative thing, maybe he'll respond by becoming good and motivate some change in his life, which it motivated some change, but, um, but it was kind of a, a, a change that he 
led to kind of trying to add up, but, but never truly measuring, measuring up. And so here is this son who continues to try to live up to his father's um, expectations, trying to earn his love. And that is a de- very defeating place to be. And as I've thought about that over the years, I have realized that that is a pretty good little picture of our relationship with God and, in a distorted sense, a, a bad religion. You know, we are told by, by the Scripture, that is the voice of our Father, you know, some things about us that aren't very pretty. I, the, the Bible, to my knowledge, no translation I've ever read tells us we're lazy slobs. <laughs> but it tells us probably something even worse, and that is that it says that we're sinful. It says that we are transgressors, which means we violate his, his good and healthy instruction for our lives. Uh, it tells us that we are defiant enemies of, of God because we choose um, other things to satisfy us rather than, than him. That we are, in fact, um, infected by this dehumanizing thing that, 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 um, that gravitates towards arrogance and the fulfillment of ego and selfishness. Um, the evidence of which is seen all around us in our broken relationships, in our sense of brokenness on our own souls, in the brokenness of the world around us, which you can't deny. Even unbelievers, uh, people who don't believe in Jesus, acknowledge, or at least you can see it in their, their striving, that they're, they're dislocated. They're, um, there's a sense of lostness, a sense of uh, lack of completion in their lives. And so they, they, they seek after something to make um, make them feel either good about themselves or in the case of religion, to make them feel good about their relationship with God, whoever he may be in their, their eyes. Um, but that is, a, um, that is this thing we have within us, and the, the Bible tells us, in fact, that that comes from this place we call, we call sin. And when the Bible says that we're sinners, it doesn't do so to, um, in a mean way. It doesn't do that to manipulate us. It does so because... Um, because God loves us and wants to know that we have a real struggle and a problem. On the other hand, um, you, in that story I told of the father who told the son he was a lazy slob, the bad religion is, is then trying to figure out a way by which we can reconnect, um, which is what my first friend was trying to do in his relationship with his father. He's trying to figure out ways that he could work to um, reconnect with the one who... He wanted to love him. And that, too, is something that, um, that, that bad religion tries to do, whether it's in a secular form or a, a religious form, is in that sense of, of incompleteness and dislocation, in the sense that, like, inwardly, we feel like, I, I haven't arrived. I need something else to complete me, you know, like the movie says. Um, that we turn to these man-made ways in which we try to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, or feel good in our relationship with God. And that is, that is what we might call bad religion, because no matter how much you try, your life rests upon how you perform, how you do. And, and then there's the, the gaping question of, in, in terms of God, did, did I actually do enough so that I'm accepted by him, so that I'm reconnected in, with him in a way that I know he loves me? or in a more secular form of, of trying to do things so as to feel complete in and of ourselves, 
um, which people don't feel complete, which is why the self-help section is one of the largest at Barnes & Noble. They're looking for something. People are looking for something to complete their own sense of, of, of lack. And all of that are human attempts to try and feel in a place of peace or equilibrium, a place of personal utopia, um, either with ourselves or, in the case of religion, with, with God. But at the end of the day, like the story I opened with, it leaves a person trying and trying and trying to gain acceptance or have that sense of completion um, based upon their own efforts. And that, as I said last week, is a treadmill where you run really hard but don't get anywhere. And Paul, in this, 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 this little book called Galatians, you know, a little letter that he wrote because he was concerned about the people he loved, more importantly, the people that Jesus loved. And his, this little letter called Galatians, taken from the name of the place where the people lived, um, is an attempt by the Apostle Paul to destroy destroy, terminate, decimate bad religion. Uh, Anything on the part of our human attempts to try and complete ourselves or to make ourselves um, acceptable to the Lord. He wants to destroy it because it's slavery. And he's going to destroy it um, in a number of ways. In these first verses, which is the introduction to his book, it's just every book has an introduction, right? He has an introduction, and in this little small introduction, verses 1 through 10, um, he kind of, in very summary fashion, um, hits the main things he's going to unfold in the rest of the book. And in these opening verses, he kind of lays them out. One, he is going to assert his own divine authority. Two, the divine action of grace and three, what we might call the danger or the damning compromise of mixing human-based working to either be complete in ourselves or, more importantly, to be connected to God um, and, and, and doing it ourselves as opposed to God coming down and doing it for us. So with that said, I just part one in which he is going to begin to dismantle or destroy this idea that we have to complete ourselves or we have to make ourselves uh, approvable by the Lord is this issue of, of divine authority. Um, divine authority, in this case, the divine authority of the message of grace or the message of the cross. This is, this is how Paul starts out. He says, verse 1, I, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And we easily pass over this first verse as just, you know, introductory hoopla, kind of like to whom it may concern. But it's not. This very first verse um, summarizes what he's going to spend almost two chapters arguing for, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, into the middle of chapter 2. Namely, the divine authority of, of, of himself as an apostle and therefore his message. That's what's in in chapter 1. He is asserting the divine authority that God has given him as an apostle and the divine authority of his message. Now, I don't want to bore you with history, but give me just a second to kind of reflect on what might have happened in Galatia, to which then Paul had to respond with this assertion of authority. 
Galatian churches would hear Paul's gospel that, you know, God has done something in Christ Jesus to forgive them and give them eternal life, and, and they received it with joy and so forth. And then along came other teachers who attacked that message and said, Paul kind of got it right, but there are other things you need to do. And they did so, that is, they changed or added to his message by attacking his authority. If you want to attack a person's message, the uh, validity of it, well, then you've got to attack the person's authority. If you can show they have no authority, well, then you can take apart their message. Somebody on television who they say is a doctor, who they find, you find out isn't a doctor, well, that kind of undermines the credibility of everything he says. Well, the same thing here. They, they perhaps said, well, you know, Paul the Apostle is not like the other 12 apostles. He didn't actually walk with Jesus through his earthly ministry. Um, he was one that was, in the words of Paul, untimely born. He didn't meet Jesus till after, on the road to Damascus. So therefore, his apostleship isn't quite as credible as the Jerusalem apostles. So, got the message mostly right, but, you know, he isn't quite the apostle of apostles, and so we need to add to his teaching. That's kind of um, a replay or a reconstruction of what took place, in which Paul's going to say no. Absolutely not. He opens up with Paul, an apostle. And we use that word apostle without understanding truly what it means, and that is an apostle was one who carried all the authority of the one who sent him. And Jesus is, as we know from Matthew 28, one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. When he sends an apostle, which is the importance of the word apostle, that apostle comes or goes out with all of the divine authority of Jesus. He is, if you will, an ambassador, like our ambassadors. When our ambassadors in, in, in Africa or over in Germany, they speak on behalf of the nation. They speak with the authority of the nation. So when Paul speaks and he writes, he writes and speaks with the authority of Christ himself. It's not intrinsic. It's vested authority. It's not intrinsic, but it's vested. But Paul is saying, I, Paul, an apostle. And just to make it perfectly clear, he says um, that his apostleship is not from men. In other words, it doesn't derive from people. Nothing human nor through men, that is through the instrumentation of men, but, now he insists, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, he's saying in no uncertain terms, I'm an apostle with authority, and therefore my message carries divine authority because my apostleship didn't come through other people, it came from God himself through God himself. So what he says carries divine authority. And you might say, big deal. Tell you what, The issue of authority is one of the most, if not the most fundamental issue um, and and question for all of us in terms of authority. Because our beliefs are built upon what we believe to be true authority. Here Paul, against their teaching, is basically saying, listen, if I'm an apostle, and I am, by God's own direct hand, then what I wrote to you and what I preached to you is gospel truth, period. That means all of that other stuff you heard them say, it's wrong. That's why he's asserting asserting his, his, his authority. But he's doing so for the sake of the liberation of, of God's people who are being, if you will, um, enslaved again by this this wrong teaching. Now, as I said, I I believe this particular issue of authority is fundamental, and I I hope to show you why it's fundamental. Um, You look back at the beginning of the Bible, 
and what plunged all of mankind into the mess that we're in now, as individuals, as a society, as a mankind, as a human race. You know, it comes back to the single moment when the serpent comes to the woman, and he says to her, did God say? Did God say? And then he goes on to give a completely twisted version of what God said. And he said, did God say that you should not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Which is a massive twisting. But notice he attacks the goodness of God's authoritative word. Did God say? And then he twists it. And in that moment, she listens to the voice of the deceiver, turning away from the good, authoritative voice of the one who created and loved her. And in that moment, all of humanity fell. An issue of authority, of, of whether or not God's word is a good word and an authoritative word. What we believe to be the authoritative voice in life is one of the most, if not the most, fundamental questions of all. Now, there are lots of voices um, that, and some of you might think, well, this is Parkway Community Church. Forgive me, I have to stand up for this part. Um, we're Parkway Community Church. We believe that stuff, that this is the Word of God, and, and, and this is the, it's divinely authoritative and answering questions of reality and purpose and, and origins and, and how we're made right with the Lord and, and, and who we are and how we, how we experience completion and so forth. We believe this. So, Dan, you're preaching to the choir. And um, to that, again, I'd say there's a big, huge difference between the stated belief and the functional belief. It's easy to say that God's Word is the ultimate voice that we listen to, but in function, we actually listen to other ones. Um, Some of those voices come within the church. Some come from without the church. Some come from within our own hearts. You'll hear voices in the church sometimes say things like, like this. What matters is not what we say. It's that we love people. We just say that for emphasis. You'll hear sometimes people say, it's not a matter of what we say. It matters only that we love people. And I understand the intent behind that, and I understand the centrality of love in the Scriptures. But let's not put it in in a wrong place. That my loving people, my neighbors and my church family, my loving people is not going to save me. And your loving people is not going to save them. Period. As good as love is, and as good of an outworking of what God does in us, we're saved by the simple fact that God acted in history and loved us first. It's His love that counts. And that love has materialized itself in a cross and a resurrection. And that's what saves people. We've got to be careful about how we state things because that can actually be quite dangerous voice. Giving people the sense, well, I've got to love people if they're going to be saved. Well, I hope you do love people. And shame on a few if you don't, but understand. Um, it's the gospel that saves them, not your love. That's, that's an important voice that oftentimes we'll listen and, and, and get it wrong. Wrong emphasis. Or the world speaks to us. And I I made mention of a couple ways last week, but there's so many that it's worth repeating a couple, not repeating, uh, enumerating a couple extras. The world likes to say messages like, well, if if you'll discover this, embrace this, and live out this, then you'll experience freedom. 
And that's nowhere more clearly seen, and it's not the only place it's seen, when the world says to those who are confused, if you discover, embrace, and live out your orientation, then you will be free. And you know what I'm talking about. And deep down, it's not a question of one's sexuality. That's the surface of it. The deep down question is the fact that in this world, and by this world's own voice, has said to people, if you will discover this, embrace this, and live this out, you will be free. When in fact, with this promise of false freedom, someone receives slavery in return. That's the issue. Or for those introverts out there, you know, we live in a, an extrovert, um, praising society. So if you happen to be one of those introverts who likes quietness, isn't very funny, or at least you don't think you're very, self very funny, when our world prizes the extrovert who's extremely humorous, because that's what the voice of the world says it wants, then you feel like, well, in terms of the measures and weights of society, I am not praised. I am not valued as other people are. And inadvertently, who did you listen to who told you that? You listen to the voice of the world who told you that. Some of the greatest thinkers in history have changed the course of events have been introverts who, because they like to be alone, actually spend time pondering and thinking about things that extroverts never think about. That's the voice of the world speaking and defining you. Kind of like my friend was defined by the voice of his father. Or here's a very dangerous one. The, our own voice. This is, this, is, this is where many people who have once been in the church who have left the church, um, it's that they listen to their own inner voice that does things like looking at their life and realizing, you know what, this isn't what I expected. And they look at their lives and, and realize the circumstances didn't turn out how they expected, and there's a lot of pain in the middle of that. And based upon their judgment on how God should have worked and how he didn't work, they come to the conclusion that God is not good or maybe he just doesn't exist. Now, where does that judgment come from? That's the voice of the self. Judging one's life, coming to a conclusion and believing that, casting oneself in a place of doubt. There's a lot of people that listen to that voice. Or here's another voice we listen to. We feel unworthy because we're, we're messed up. And there's not a single person in here who still doesn't struggle with sin. Some of them the same sins. And we know what God's word says. And yet when we find ourselves struggling with our particular set of sins, we find ourselves feeling unworthy. Like how could I be a Christian and, and, and be a sinner at the same time? And in those moments, we choose to listen to the voice of, I am unworthy, and therefore I am unimportant to the Lord. And we fall into despair, doubt. Don't tell me people don't experience that, but what are you doing when you fall into that sense of despair and doubt because you feel unworthy? You, my friends, and I are listening to another voice. And Paul's saying here, just so you understand, he's saying, you want to know what voice to listen to? 
Listen to the voice of God in the divinely approved and authoritative word that he sent me to give. This is the place to listen to, not just with your head, but your heart. Because this is the place you can trust. This is the place you can hang your whole life on. That's the issue of authority. You see? Comes right out in his letter, swinging, right? At the the very bottom foundational level. The authority of God's word. The authority of God spoken through the Apostle Paul. That means you can read Galatians and know, this is the truth. This is the voice I'm going to listen to. Not this voice, not that voice, and not the the voice of the church if it's in opposition to the voice of Paul in Scripture because he has been, as verse 1 says, divinely appointed, and his message is divinely validated. You see, what what you listen to matters. That's kind of part one. He wants to bring freedom to the church, and so what he does is he asserts his own divine authority. But then he goes on to talk about God's gracious action on our behalf. As I said, the, the introduction kind of sums up in real packed form. Um, in summary, what, 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 what he's going to say the rest of the time. And so he says in verse 3, this is God's action um, of grace on our behalf. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Right here in verse 4, he, he like just kind of encapsulates the truth, the truth that sets God's people free, what we might call the center of the gospel. And you'll notice he alludes to the fact that we are messed up. He says that, you know, Christ gave himself for our sins. That's our, our, our own individual fallen, broken incompleteness, the fact that we choose other things and not the Lord. Our sins, and Paul includes himself. He was a sinner too. So it identifies our individual problems as that of sin. But you'll notice he also alludes to the fact that we're part of a big, huge contextual or global or universal problem. And that he sums up in to deliver us from the present evil age. An age, an aeon, a time span, which the Bible would say is pretty much between Genesis 3 and the second coming of Jesus. All of human history could be defined as this present evil age. Um, An age or a time, a domain that is ruled by human corruption, human conflict, demonic oppression, death, and the curse of God. This is this domain we're a part of, this age we're a part of, by those things that dominate human corruption, conflict. And there's no age, hardly even a decade, where that's not true. Not a single year goes by where, where we don't experience global conflict. That is, that is human experience and history proves the fact that we are, in fact, a present evil age, an age in which um, death dominates and so forth. And you know what? There's the individual sin because we're part of it, but then there's this big, huge, contextual, global, universal sense, and we're a part of something we can't escape. We can't fly over it. We can't, can't climb over it. We can't dig under it. It's just this impenetrable, unescapable reality that we live in. That's our world, under the curse of God. You know what I thought of when I, when, when I re- was thinking about that concept, something we can't get out of? I kept thinking of a, you know, a canning jar, you know? As kids, you'd catch ants and put them in a candy jar. Maybe you didn't. I did. Um, 
And then just screw on that lid so you could keep them. And poor little ants, man. You know, like they're inside this glass jar, and they wander all through the thing. Like, where's the way out? You know, just where's the way out? All around the jar. Looking and looking and looking. And try as they may. Gather together as a whole group of ants and try and twist that top off. It's not going to happen. They're stuck. They're stuck. And if I could provide an image to this present evil age, I would say that this is where we live. This is humanity sealed in this jar called this present evil age. And, and nobody can manage to get us out of it. And that's what bad religion tries to do, is it tries to say, how can we work our way out of this jar? That's kind of secular belief. How can we find modern-day utopia in our soul and souls, trying to find our way out of the jar when you can't get out from this, this context of corruption and conflict and chaos? It's, we're locked in there. The UN can't get us out. Politics can't get us out. Religion can't get us out. How are we going to get out of this thing? Bad religion tries to do that, and the fact is it's impossible. You can march all around this jar as we want. We're not going to get out of it. That's the human dilemma. But notice what he says. This is a summation of the gospel. That Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, he gave himself, offered himself, sacrificed himself, willingly and voluntarily, he enters the jar as the only perfect ant for a whole bunch of sinful ants and gives himself, offers himself so that all of the curse and the death and the corruption that we're charged with and will be condemned for all are laid upon him so that one suffers in place of the many so that he who knew no sin, Jesus in the jar who knew no sin, might become sin on our behalf and be punished in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, so he takes care of our sins. But you notice that second part, to deliver us out of the present evil age according to the will of who? The Father. That is to the only one. This is cool. Think about it this way. It's all these ants trying for centuries and millennia, trying to open the jar, fix the problem. And God the Father, through the Son, who voluntarily comes, um, God the Father reaches down to do what we cannot do. And it's through the Son to open that jar lid. He's the one who does it. That's good news. That's grace. In the person of His Son. And then the good news or the message of the Gospel is, is basically getting inside the jar saying, He's opened the top. He's made a way. It's free for those who will listen and know that God has done everything necessary for you to be in the open air again. He's done it. The Father has done it through the Son. And notice there's no human action here. It doesn't tell us to do anything. It doesn't, doesn't say humans had any part in this other than the human God-man Jesus Christ, the only perfect one, who is God's Son come to, to make possible the opening of this lid. And the Gospel says, it's open. Will you believe? I made the way. I made the way. 
And then the response to that is, is for God's people to recognize, you did do it! Actually, you did it! And I, I stand free, not because of anything I've done, but because God in Christ, the Father, has opened the jar. You think back to my story at the beginning. It may be true that our Father says, you are indeed sinners. But he doesn't stay there and say, now measure up to my expectation. No, he's the one who said, I, in gracious love, am going to open the jar. And before that, I'm going to come and become one of you and take your place so that the jar can be opened and be free. I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who measures up on your behalf. So stop trying to manipulate your way back to opening the screw top yourself. And that's why Paul is so upset. You know, in this last section, and I'm not going to go into this deep because we've already touched it last week. You know, where he's, he's upset. He's like, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserting him who called you in grace of Christ or turning to, to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. That's not, there is no other way. There is no other good news for humanity other than the fact that God the Father has done what we need in grace through his Son. And then he goes on to say, if anyone preaches anything different, any other message than the divinely authoritative message of Paul and the apostles, then let him be damned is what he says. You know why? Because the people are, are being told, you need to go back into the jar again. Little ant, go back into the jar. And Paul's like, no. Don't go back into the jar. God opened it for you. Live in the freedom He's gained for you. And that church is what we need to rediscover in our hearts. Many are still living in the jar and the jar's open. You're still trying to add up or measure up or living by the voice of the world, listening to the voice in your own heart. Listen to the voice of bad religion. And the simple truth of the gospel is God has accomplished what you need. You live in the freedom of His grace and love knowing you were sinners, but now you've been forgiven in Christ. You didn't have hope, but now you have hope in Christ. All you had was death around you, and now you have life in Christ. You have it all. Live in freedom. And just to seal that up, if, if you will, here you have Paul asserting authority. This is the voice you listen to for the sake of freedom. This is where freedom is found, is in Christ and Christ alone. And there's nowhere else. I've got to take you to one final person who oftentimes the book of Galatians and Romans um, and the idea of recovery of the gospel comes to. I mentioned him, I believe, last week, and that is the, the person of Martin Luther. Many of you have heard his name. Um, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the German Martin Luther. Although it's interesting that Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther, the German, and that both were used by God, one to deliver the Germans from oppression and the other African-Americans. It's interesting. Um, but the German, Martin Luther, who was a monk, and just such a sensitive conscience, he just wanted to know he was right with the Lord. You know, the, the sense that, that, you know, God punishes sin, and he, he tried what he could to try and get rid of that inner shame that he carried around, and the sense that God was against him. He's tried everything according to the bad religion of his day. So at one point, you know, he, he would go through the practices of, of accounting for and then confessing in the confession every single sin he did, however big or however, however small, to the point where the guy who was taking the confession said, listen, don't come back unless you've done something big. I mean, that's how tender his conscience was. So he basically said, you just make your list and when you get something big enough, then, then come to me, but stop taking up all my time with all this confession. But he was doing it because he wanted to be made right with the Lord. At another time, he, he took a pilgrimage to Rome. And back in that time, he got points on your ledger with God. 
um, if you did a pilgrimage. And, and he went to Rome, and, and all he saw there was religious corruption. And, and to him, it was like, the answer can't be here. And one one, one, one uh, well-known experience, a uh, young German monk, Martin Luther, he, he went to the staircase that they call the Scala Sancta, which was believed to be a staircase that originally Jesus walked up in Rome, that they had transported somehow to Rome. And, and the young Martin Luther, wanting to make points with the Lord, climbed that, believing, because that's what the religion of the day said, that if you did so, you gained points with the Lord. And each stair, 28 steps in all, each stair he would pray and kiss the step. People still do that. Believing. And he got to the edge, end of the, in Jerusalem, we see him do that all the time in the Holy Land. People kissing things, thinking somehow it's going to add to their ledger. And he got to the top of the 28th step and my translation, who knows? Trying everything to get out from under what he believed was the hand of God against him. And it was the words of Paul who at the end of the day after he wrestled and pondered and thought, he came to texts like this one or in Romans. And the Holy Spirit turned on the light to the voice. Not the voice of tradition, the voice of God in the gospel, especially in the writings of Paul. And the lights went on. This is his experience. He wrote... He said, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. That's a man wanting to know and just, what does Galatians mean, you know? What does Romans mean? He says, day and night I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God, which he saw as almost entirely negative as God just pouring down wrath on sinners, until he made the connection of the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Not by what they do, but the fact that they've trusted that God has, in Christ has done it all. Then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us. That is, he says you're righteous not because you're righteous, but because my son is righteous. And in that sense, I'm just. Thereupon I felt, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have come to true, if you have a true faith in Christ as your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and open up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. And in that moment, listening to the voice, free. He knew what it was like to live in the jar, and he understood the gospel. Though he had read Romans and Galatians for years, he understood it for the first time. And he felt free. Now I wonder how many here, like ants, inside of that glass, and you're just continuing to try and live up, live up, live up, and you still feel like there's this gaping hole in yourself and also in your relationship with the Lord. And part of it's because maybe you've never gotten this. Or maybe you thought you got it, but you never really do. You know, one of the most dangerous things is not knowing what you don't know. Of not knowing that you don't know the gospel because you think you do. And you know what happens when God opens the heart? We talk about doing works of ministry and love. A man, when, when God touches down through the gospel and liberates a heart to know its freedom, I'll tell you what, you can't stop the productivity that happens. I mean, after this event, 
Martin Luther was the turning point in the German nation, united them in a common language because he translated the Bible into German for the first time. And his works are so numerous, you can hardly read them all. I mean, productivity went through the roof. Why? Because he had trust that God in Christ and grace had done it all, and he believed it. That changes everything. I hope that you know what's spoken up here, and if you don't, that you will wrestle with him and ponder and say, Lord, what does this mean? And help me to listen to this voice and bank everything on your voice that speaks truth, the good, forth the good news that God has opened a jar in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus alone. Lord, please help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief. And for those who don't know what they don't know, I pray that they would come to know that they know what they don't know, and that is the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing the final song of the message? Well, we're free. We're not ants in a jar. Thank God. But not only has he taken the top off, he's blown the sides out, the bottom. We're free indeed, brothers and sisters. Free to worship Christ and Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest shroud and song.